Hello and welcome to this episode of the Fertility Podcast. I'm Natalie Silverman, your host. And if this is your first listen to the podcast, I always like to just explain a bit about what this is all about because I've been making it for um, good four and a half years now. And there's a load of episodes. You don't need to listen to them in order. I speak to all sorts of people from experts to people sharing their stories. But the aim of this podcast, the Fertility Podcast, is to give you some insight into what might be going on with your own fertility so I talk to men and women I talk to experts dealing with all sorts of different conditions as well as experts in their own right they might have created products they might have written books my chat today is with an amazing psychotherapist called Julia Bueno who took some time out from uh, her kind of day job to write an, an incredible book and actually one thing that I'm doing this week is I'm sharing five showcase episodes that I made at Fertility Fest and one of them includes a reading by Julia of her book because it's from the miscarriage evening and Julia's book is all about um, a real study of loss it's called The Brink of Being and I'll explain more about her in a bit because the first thing I want you to do is please subscribe to this podcast because that way you won't miss these five brilliant upcoming episodes that I'm going to share from Fertility Fest, giving you an overview of some of like the main sessions. They're little snippets, they're 10 minutes each ish because we were trying to kind of show the highlights. I've also done a showcase episode of Fertility Fest and if you don't know what Fertility Fest is. It's a brilliant British-based festival that brought together a whole host of artists and experts to talk about a whole load of topics that we have to deal with when we're trying to conceive. And um, I was the podcaster in residence to try and put the audio spin on it, which is what I'm all about, really, if this is your first listen. I've had a mad week. I've been in Brighton this week at a clinic called the Agora. And if you're in the UK, you'll, you'll know about Brighton. If you're not, so Brighton Festival is by the sea. I love it and I used to live down there and it holds a very special place in my heart two of my best friends live down there and I got to see them both. One of them, her dogs had puppies, which if you follow me on my Insta, which is uh, at Fertility Poddy, I shared a squishy picture of a little Cocker Spaniel puppy. Um, but Brighton is a really diverse place. It's got an amazing kind of wealth of interesting people, famous people, the likes of um, Adele, Zoe Ball, Norman Cook, David Gilmour from Pink Floyd, all um, our residents. And um, it just kind of has this free spirit about it. And it has a big LGBT community. And the Agora has been doing more and more work to support that community, working with them. And this podcast series that I was making was giving different viewpoints from the Agora's kind of patients, including some trans patients. And I'm really looking forward to whittling them down, working on them a bit and then sharing them with you. So I will, of course, let you know when they are. That's going to be a couple of months time. So, of course, I'll I'll let you know. Um, But going back to that, subscribing to this podcast and rating and reviewing it, um, I, I feel really like stupid asking this but ultimately the more excitement that happens about a podcast when you listen to it like if it gets loads of reviews and comments then then apple podcast which is now what it's called because they've kind of banished itunes but it's okay you can still get your music it's just your music will be in one place and your podcast will be in another place i digress the more excitement that that apple podcast sees about um comments and reviews and ratings of a podcast it like bumps it up for people to be able to see it so go on 
do that for me. If you're not listening in Apple Podcasts, whether you listen in Stitcher, in Acast, and Google Podcasts, it's all relevant. So um, it'd be amazing if you can take a few moments to just do that for this podcast. The other thing that's happening this week, and this podcast is going out on the 10th of June, 2019. So if you're listening later, you've missed it, um, is the male fertility event that this little group of us talk fertility that's like a northern based fertility collective are putting on. Now, what we're doing is just bringing together some awesome experts talking about, for example, lifestyle and environmental factors that could impact on your sperm health and your fertility in general. We've got Dr. Mohammed Akhtar and Dr. Michael Carroll talking about their work and their studies. We've also got Robin Hadley, who's an amazing man who does a lot of um, research and, and talks openly about living his life childless. And if you're at a place where that might be how things are going to pan out, then really it's to hear the voice of someone to say, look, I've walked it, I know what's going on with you, I feel it, and um, if you've got any questions. And also just making sure you're looking after yourself. We've got Jack Broadley, who's founded Baggy Trousers, which is a testicular cancer charity. He survived it himself, and he runs support groups, and he just helps raise awareness of how men can look after themselves. So there's a big focus on guys this week in my world in Manchester, which kind of leads me back, I suppose, to my guest today, and the topic of miscarriage because I was actually having an interesting conversation just yesterday. I've been training to be a fertility coach and I've just completed my training and I've just started working with my first case study and we were having a conversation about sperm actually and about how it's still kind of not really thought about as much as it could be that sperm issues could have an impact on a miscarriage all too often the focus is, is on the female or there's not enough focus. Um, but there is something to be said about understanding both bits of what it makes an embryo because it does take two, doesn't it? And I think it's really relevant to kind of tie that all in. So we're going to hear from Julia Bueno, who I mentioned earlier, talking about her book. I had to do this interview on Zoom, which isn't my favourite and it's not the best quality, so I do apologise. And my lovely editor, Alex, is helping me um, make it sound nicer. Um, but don't let that put you off, please, because what Julia has to say is is really vital. Before we hear from her, though, big thank you to my sponsor for this podcast, which helps me make it happen. And be sure to listen to the end where I'll give you all the show notes of how you can find out about everything that's been talked about and um, just how you can hear more episodes of this podcast. All right. So enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by International Andrology, who specialize in diagnosing and treating male infertility. Around 50% of infertility issues are male factor. And all too often, men aren't even evaluated at the start of a fertility journey which might result in unnecessary treatments, costs and disappointment. International Andrology is one of the few specialist clinics in the UK offering a holistic approach to increase your chances to conceive naturally or via the IVF route. As well as treating the underlying causes of male infertility, their doctors have some of the highest success rates in microsurgical sperm retrieval. So, if you're looking for a true specialist to assist you on your fertility journey, visit london-andrology.co.uk today and do mention the Fertility Podcast. I'm now delighted to welcome Julia Bueno back to the podcast. Julia is a psychotherapist and author of a new book called The Brink of Being, which has just been published. We're talking in May. I'm not sure when I'm going to share this episode with you, but Julia is in the midst of a book launch. She's about to run a half marathon. Welcome to the podcast, Julia. Thank you for having me. Having you back because we spoke 
we spoke yeah. a while back we spoke about i think a, a couple of years ago now um but we've been keeping tabs on one another and and how do you feel now that your book is is out there um strange you know it was as you can imagine a, a labor of love and a labor of toil and sweat and it was a sort of very much abstract notion for a very long time and now that it is out there it's just sort of slowly percolating that it's real and it exists i saw it in a bookshop and that was a very strange strange thing but um there's also a sort of sense of relief that it's been done um but it's early days and uh, of course uh, there's a bit of nerves about how it's going to be received well i mean this is an incredible amount of work that you've put into what you've created looking at perceptions history our narrative of miscarriage and you talk about early late recurrent you cover so much ground and i want to talk through as much of it as we can as i've learned so much in what i've read of it and i know that you've written this book saying that things have improved over time but we still have a long way to go mm. um so as far as your feelings of revisiting a lot of what you wrote about mm. I, i'm interested in how you approached writing everything down revisiting that pain and, and the agony that was felt because that in itself must have been quite a, a challenge i know you work around talking about the feelings and 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 your your training probably enables you to revisit this kind of stuff but I still imagine it can't have been easy no it it, it wasn't and it still isn't um I um was reading a bit out of my bit of my book out um recently and I had to pause I was choked up um it's um I if I'm brutally honest I think I underestimated um, myself I thought that I I mean there was a good reason why it took many years for me to to even begin to write the book and put the proposal together um, it was a good sort of six seven years for my final miscarriage that I felt I had a kind of enough distance and a sense of calmness to approach my material as well as everybody else's um, and to have that uh, I suppose level of dispassion to be able to kind of helicopter up and look at the whole experience um, but yeah, the truth is in the writing, it, it was very painful. I did revisit it. And that's, that's what grief does though, doesn't it? It's, um, it goes on. Well, <coughs> sorry. Sadly, it, it is a constant, I suppose, process of experiencing the highs and the lows and the reminders and the triggers. And I wanted to go back to you talking in the introduction, um, about your own fertility, which quite early on was in question you talked about irregular and unusual cycles and I was interested in the conversations that were had with you around it was it ever raised that miscarriage could be a risk no um I certainly don't remember it being on the radar when I was thinking about conceiving um and even when it was discovered that I had this womb abnormality I've got a unicorn at uterus and sort of one functioning ovary well there was sort of semi over uh, sorry not over a fallopian tube um and that was removed i it was I, I it was a long time ago but my over overarching memory is sort of slightly gung-ho you know it's um crack on anyway it'll be all right i subsequently learned over the years that there were probably risks associated that could have been spelt out to me around uh, um i think I, I had a higher risk of a premature birth um with 
which which sub subsequent pregnancies you know turned out to be true i was after my first miscarriage my son was born at 28 weeks um and survived thank god and is here here with me now but yes i'm i'm going into the weeds now but i certainly feel in retrospect i wasn't given enough information wasn't armed and you 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 talk about how when you were pregnant with your twins and having to have that stitch in your cervix and i'm interested at that stage as well whether the conversations of the risks were explained to you or whether you were just obviously in this place of wanting to obviously you know do everything you can and you talk about this phrase you use crawling through the treacle of time it just made my heart ache and I, I want to just talk a bit about that coping during that time with knowing what you knew yeah I, I mean I, I uh it was pretty hellish uh, to uh, as an understatement I can still I can still really feel those feelings um I to be fair to my brilliant doctor at the time he nobody could know you know he put the stitch in and it really was a case of it's in the lap of the gods um I didn't go I think I talked about this a little bit in the book but he you know his take-home message was just cross your fingers he told me I remember him telling me two stories that he'd stitched women at a similar stage with a similar similar kind of um amount of opening the cervix and one had gone to term and one hadn't I was left literally with not knowing and that's that's well, that's just a real existential threat for every human being, isn't it? Bearing the unbearable, um, you know, the two week wait, you know, after IVF or the waiting for a medical test to, to come back. It tests every human being to the extreme. And I think what I did was what most of us do, which is just dig as deep as you can and take every day as it comes and just get through the day. And it felt, I don't know whether you remember that, I stuck with me that, that scene in the Shawshank Redemption when he's sort of crossing off each day and that um, on the calendar and that that's very much what it was like. And mm. that heightened sense of, I mean, it's compounded by that kind of heightened sense of fear and worry that, you know, you're waiting, you're just waiting for time to pass and for things to be okay and exquisitely attuned to every single um, pulse in your body, the kind of blood going around it, the gurgle in your tummy, the snot in your nose. Um, so it's, yeah, it's hell on earth. And you, you talk a lot about our narrative and how focused it is on the idea that a bond with a child can only begin after a living baby is born. And one of the things you mentioned is the Korean idea of, is it, is it Tayego? Is that how you say it? Do you know, to be honest, I don't know how to pronounce it correctly, but... Apologies okay. for the Korean listeners if I've said it wrong. Me too. <laughs> and that's a big kind of emphasis on our, our narrative, isn't it, in the book, is how we, we make these assumptions. We cast judgment over how people may be feeling and that's something that you want to dispel with the information that you're sharing what i really hope runs like a golden thread through the whole book is separating out this received kind of reductive quote unquote biological discourse around personhood and embodiment um, that a baby only exists when it begins to look like a baby or feels like a baby or it's sort of intelligible as one in the kind of mind's eye in my experience, that just isn't true, you know, and I write a lot about this child and mind and the, the relationship that is formed with a baby that exists before conception. You know, I, I, like many people, tried to get pregnant for a while before before I did conceive and that baby lived in my mind. I never imagined having two at once, but I certainly had images and, and very strong feelings to my imagined daughter slash son. And this child and mind resides and is real. Um, you know, I, I 
Hilary Mantel writes so brilliantly about this in her book. And if anybody, I recommend anybody's listening to this to read Giving Up the Ghost, her memoir. She's got quite a few pages where she spells this out so exquisitely as somebody who, um, who didn't conceive. But yeah, I, I hope that answers your question. I realise it's... No, it's it, and, and do you do you see that or do you feel that opinions might be changing the more conversations that we have about this bond that we're understanding more about the relationship of a woman and a man to their unborn child? I think they, uh, in my experience, the more that I I certainly talk about it with people and, ex- and explain it in these very straightforward terms, it is understood. It's not rocket science, mm. but. It, you know it's past me it's a shame that we have to spell it out because it's such a given for me and I have to remind myself that it's not so easy for other people but yeah I think that that this is part of the education you know we started this talk about thinking about you know education and information and for, for patients and women and men to be informed but also for the rest of the world to to be educated about what the reality the the, the kind of phenomenological experience of conception in wanting to conceive involves um, and I think uh, you know, I really, uh, I'm very optimistic and faithful of humanity. I think that people will get it. Well, it makes sense. It makes sense if you actually stop and think about it, that, exactly. you know, this isn't just something, because a lot of the language that we use, and, you know, you talk about it, is how we refer to, oh, at least you at least you could get pregnant, or when it's a miscarriage after a successful pregnancy, people making comments like, well, at least, at least you've got the one. And they just throw away comments that people aren't really thinking about what they're saying. They're just saying stuff. And also just, you know, think about when we do, a, when women do a pregnancy test, I've never heard any other expression, but, oh, I'm having a baby. <laughs> when that, that, in my day, it was a pink line and it's now a digital whatever, but it's a, going back to this idea of language, tuning into the language of, you know, for not every woman, it's a baby. They might sort of say, oh, I'm pregnant and it becomes a baby at their own time. And I'm very respectful of that, but it's tuning into, to that very individual exquisitely intimate relationship between the expectant mother but also her partner and this pregnancy and if it's a baby it's a baby you talk as well about the books that you read during your pregnancy i mean i hadn't even thought about that and and i suppose there is an element here that we don't want to instill fear you know being pregnant especially if it's your first pregnancy is is overwhelming anyway in that you know you're you're nervous about whether at that stage you've experienced loss. I mean, I know the anxiety is something that you talk about the feelings later if it is there is a pregnancy after a miscarriage, but is it right that pregnancy books therefore don't talk about what could go wrong and they focus on it? Or you raise the point, which I'd never even thought of, that there's no mention of it in a pregnancy guide. Yeah, I mean, I think I refer to the sort of standard book bit where it is, it is at the back of the book. It's an interesting one. I, to, to be brutally honest, I'm not quite sure where I sit on that mm. because I think it is right that I I'm, I know what I'm getting to. What I'm reaching towards is, if I had magic dust, I could flow over the throw over the world. It would be the case that that miscarriage stories, ectopic pregnancies, molar pregnancies, pregnancies that quote or quotes go, and I don't like this expression wrong, but they don't follow the trajectory that we all hope for and aspire to and that is quote-unquote normal and I use that because that's how they're relegated but wouldn't it be wonderful we come to a world where the pregnancies that go in different trajectories are normal have parity are spoken about with just as much ease so the happy pregnancy story sits alongside the one that caused distress I just think that this sort of lack of education and it being shadowy and put at the last chapter of a book serves to 
for it to become sort of shameful might be an extreme end but certainly an experience that women feel like I'm not normal I've gone I've done it wrong and I talk a lot about guilt and self-blame in the book but it's just yet another factor that a woman will will unfortunately you know which help her to interpret that she's that her body has failed her and that her pregnancy she hasn't done pregnancy right so it, it's sort of reclaiming those stories to kind of to have them equal with the others so in a roundabout way what am I saying yes I think they should be in pregnancy books and of course it makes sense that a book of pregnancy is going to mainly focus on the, pre- the pregnancy but but for me there was something about it just relegated to the back of the book as a sort of oh by the way there's this that can go wrong and here you go. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, when we're talking about books that you can then have to relate to where you're at, I mean, obviously, one of the things you just touched on is you're talking about the guilt and the, the self-blame. And I'm assuming that one of your aims is to help women and men read examples of yeah. the different stories that you've shared, showing that these feelings are valid. They are a process that you're going through and help people come to terms with those types of feelings because you know you talk about issues at work you talk about anxiety the fact that most miscarriages aren't even investigated therefore leaves you in this complete place of just unknown as to what could have happened and then how do you then work through how you're feeling yeah and I think we're back to that that point just made about bearing the bearing the not knowing that that is just an exquisitely tough thing to do and I think in the not knowing, that creates space for other feelings to kind of flood in totally humanly and appropriately, including self-blame and guilt. You know, if it's not anybody else's fault, it must be me. That's that's what we do. But I think women do that to themselves more, dare I say it, than men. And I think women are led to do that because there are cultural pressures that suggest that, including, you know, as I've just said, the kind of language around pregnancy loss. Even the word miscarriage is, is loaded, is it not? Um but yeah, there's a lot of anger too that's appropriate that, that we don't know. And um, I mean, the truth is I'm, I'm hopeful in my book and that there are some fantastic um, research projects underway and I think we're getting our act together, but it's taken its time. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, I like to think that there's been a real kind of turning point in the past five years in terms of scientific research into the causes and, and prevention of miscarriage and the psychological impact of it. But my God, you know, women have had to suffer for long enough and we're at the tip of the iceberg. Because you talk about how women are more and more volunteering themselves to be a part of this type of research, but often not actually knowing when they're sent home often to miscarry, not knowing what they could do, how they could acknowledge the loss, be it a funeral. You talk about um, Lucy as one of your one of your patients and and you know talking about what she went through with her first just from reading that and just trying to get your head around how that how that could feel to have to go through so lonely and so just in the dark as to what the best thing to do and you also talk about a hospital's decisions about whether or not a woman is able to hold the child after a, a stillbirth and there's all these different elements that I don't know how you prepare yourself for them, but I suppose knowing that these are things that may happen, then you may be in a place that you could try and come to some kind of decision. I don't know whether you could ever prepare, do you think? No, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Nothing can prepare us. And, and especially if a, a 
you know, a miscarriage or a, a ectopic pregnancy is as well that often kind of very sudden, but you know, very traumatic. And some some miscarriages can can be very physically traumatic. Of course, it could be a hell of a lot of blood loss. So there's nothing to prepare you for for that. But you're right. I think you know you make the point that there are hospital staff that it's not such a shock and surprise for them because they've been through it, and that grieving parents can be prepared to deal with the aftermath and certainly if they're going to be sent home to miscarry be I mean this is something that comes up a lot that and things are changing and education is percolating through but a lot of women still get sent home to miscarry at home without the information that they really truly need they find each other online but not in the moment and I, I think that women will benefit a lot from being really spelt out in in detail as to what their body may or may not do what the pain may or not may or may not be like so I, I've lost count of the amount of times I've heard women being told to, you know, go home with minimal information and that the pain might, you know, here's some paracetamol. And I certainly relate to, you know, I've, I've been through labour and I've also miscarried at home and I can tell you the pain was very, very similar and a paracetamol would not have touched the side. That's a very familiar story. But also, as you, you know, you make the point about um, seeing your baby's body and holding your baby's body for a lot of people I talk to. Nothing prepares us for that. We're not, we, we're not used to knowing what, what an embryonic a baby, small baby looks like or a baby's developed, you know, only in the first or second trimester. We don't see those images about. We know what a full-term baby looks like. So being prepared for that, what a baby might look like. And for a lot of people, they want to kind of honour the body and they have a ritual. But again, people aren't told. Um, and I think these are really crucial details. Yes, I mean, this is what I, you know, my, my book is about is just nudging, nudging the world in the right direction to, to normalise all these conversations. And just remind me whether there was um, a point about women that had seen the baby to not seeing the baby about the regrets, whether they were more likely to regret if they had or they hadn't I thought I'd seen a point about that well actually the research was more to do with stillbirths we don't have any research about what it's how parents um, respond to seeing their baby at, at, at smaller gestations but there was a bit of a debate as to whether they should be encouraged or not to see their babies but the research that has come out shows that most don't regret it that they're happy to and I, I write in in my book about I didn't see my babies my first um, babies lost to miscarriage I was encouraged to and I I couldn't at the time and I live with deep regret and deep guilt I mean going back to the beginning of, of your question to me about the hard feelings to revisit and writing the book was hitting a very large seam of guilt that I will continue to mine to my dying day around around the seeing Looking back, of course, you know, rose-tinted glasses, I wondered that, that certain things could have been said to me in, in preparation to see my babies that would have encouraged me that, that weren't. But for a hell of a lot of parents, seeing and holding their babies allows them to do that very natural act of, of parenting before mm. they have to say goodbye. And likewise, naming, naming them. Absolutely. Naming is, um, is such a kind of, it's what we do, isn't it? to include a family member it's in some cultures there's great of which I know I don't know enough about but there's that there are rules and rituals around names and what names are given and where they come from and and 
sorry, a bit distracted because I was just read something last night about in the Jewish religion, maybe you know more about me than me, that some babies are given the name of a dead relative and you ask permission. And anyway, the point being that... Yeah, you're, you're carrying on, you're carrying on. You normally carry on from the, um, like, initial. That's what we've done with okay. the Phoenix. You normally, the idea is to, uh, yeah, continue the family line and... Um, yeah, either with the name or with the initial of a name. So I was, my name, Natalie, is after my auntie, Norma, you know. The, okay, lovely. So, the, so there you go. You know, yeah. that, that, that is it in action, isn't it? The kind of importance of... Yeah, and, the, and it's a huge time. responsibility as a, as, as a parent thinking of the name. And, and, and I think it breaks my heart, actually, because I talk to so many people, going back a step, you know, one the other golden thread that I hope to weave through my book is that, that there is no pecking order, you know, that, of, of grief with miscarriage. And uh, a late miscarriage doesn't necessarily mean that it deserves more sympathy or compassion or condolences than an early miscarriage. And in my experience that babies who are um, quite named early losses, people do name them, but are quite uh, reticent or shy about speaking out about those names. And what I find so incredibly moving is when if you go online and you look at online memorials, which I do, because I'm interested to kind of honour and see this. For example, the Miscarriage Association has quite a load of um, online memorial web pages, and there are hundreds and hundreds of named babies, mm. and that's it, that's testament to to that going back to this relationship that they have forged in mind with their baby. Maybe it was only in their womb for a couple of weeks, but but it was a real relationship, and that baby existed there, and that name caps it, doesn't it? It kind of caps that relationship. You know, you mentioned you look at um, the different forums and one person that springs to mind with me is Elle Wright of, of Feather in the Empty Nest, who um, just recently shared a post about Teddy, who she lost and it was his birthday. It would have been his third birthday. And there was like over a thousand comments of everybody wishing wow. wishing Teddy a happy birthday. And she's therefore done a, a whole, you know, lot of work raising awareness and, and helping the conversation along. And I was looking at it thinking, gosh, like it was really heartfelt. It was like heart wrenching seeing all yeah. the comments from a th over a thousand people wishing these wishes. And I think, I mean, I know that that what we have in a community like the Instagram community is, is quite different to what we have the perception from the kind of outside world on this type of thing. And I think people still need to get used to this idea. I think people find it quite hard to get used to. And initially, when I saw it, I was kind of taken. Uh, you know I was kind of taken aback by it but then I thought it was a wonderful thing and and I think that the conversation and the book you know what you're trying to achieve will hopefully in, enhance that that focus especially when some of the, the numbers that I saw you'd written about I'll quote one that I've got here 137,000 women every year experiencing pain and go down the medical route and there's a potential number like 50,000 with early loss and but they're the ones that we know about just as a stats and how there's no record of babies lost before the 24 weeks just it just beggars belief to think of how many people we know the numbers are one in four aren't they yeah it really warms my heart like you too to see that kind of fantastic online support something i didn't have mm. um, after my first loss i mean the internet did exist but it was fairly um you know it was a bit of i think it was still dial up then and i certainly wouldn't have begun to have thought to sort of seek help online and gosh that would have been wonderful but i think you make a good point that as i understand it the kind of the lion's share of support and all that you know people who get it are kindred spirits aren't they they're people who have walked a, a, a version of their own similar path wouldn't it be wonderful if we could breach that 
community it isn't a kind of marooned community within the world that actually going back to that idea of it just being kind of fully everyone gets it <laughs> you don't have to have been through the again it's such a repeated theme I'm sure you get it too now in the work that you do that people say that you know they did speak up and say they struggled to conceive or they had been through rounds of IVF or they had recurrent miscarriage that the people they get the most support from are the people who come forward and said ah oh, you know I've been through something similar um, it isn't it, it's a bit of a leap for someone who's it's beyond their ken but let's let's try and make it their ken because it's not beyond the wit of man you know I, I think um, I think there are lots of other experiences that we don't have to go through that we get a bloody awful um, maybe that's me, me being a bit demanding of, of people but that's my lofty hope that I really wanted my book to be read by people who um, you know, maybe have no desire ever to be pregnant ever, or by a, a young man who has yet to, you know, think about becoming a parent, or, you know, that, that's a very lofty aim, I realise, but just to educate those beyond those who know about it. Well, I think the sad fact is that, you know, it's not something I've been through, but I sadly know a number of friends that have been through, and that's what the stats are that we're all going to probably have that's somebody and if we can have a little bit more information and a little bit more understanding of how even to talk about it rather than not talk about it and rather than presume that we can say these kind of quite callous comments which are as applicable to the infertility struggle as they are yeah. to loss. Yeah. I'm totally with you I want people to talk and the book is called talking about miscarriage but actually I suppose if I want to be really pernickety <laughs> it's something about well, I want people to think more than they talk because I think that everybody's yes can be oftentimes we hear kind of clumsy or awkward or inappropriate comments made each spring for for different reasons you know for one person it might be because they they don't know they don't want to talk about death and death really scares them and for another it might be that they're really feminist and they they don't that they're nervous about ascribing a kind of personhood to an early loss when they're an absolute you know they absolutely believe in pro-choice for another person it might be that they're really squeamish yeah so I think it's really useful for people to examine their own barriers to approaching this this topic but then then they can talk you know then they can work it out what they can say I don't want it to be a prescription I don't want to tell people you know my book is not a a guidebook to this is how you support and this is what you should say I'm asked a lot about what you should say to somebody <laughs> after miscarriage and I, I can give the answer but I'm always a bit loath to sort of mm. say, I don't know it's about you. one size fits all is it absolutely and also I don't know about you but I certainly remember you know when in grief and in vulnerable moments we remember things said to us do we not mm -hmm. and I certainly remember some bloody clumsy hurtful things said to me but with such love and tenderness that, that it landed okay. Mm. And those meant to me much more than the kind of slightly wooden, slightly synthetic, I'm sorry for your loss, when you, you knew that they really hadn't got it at all. Mm. I mean, that's my personal response. And, and no, I completely agree. Just going back to women kind of leaving hospital, being told to, to go home and miscarry, I mean, what would your ideal be um, that they were told? if there's there's anybody listening yeah i suppose I, my idea would be um that that you are told with great compassion <laughs> that your nurse acknowledges 
what you're going through and if she's heard you and seen you in great distress and relating to this loss as a baby you know she too reflects that back you're going home to lose your baby and that is devastating to be told that the pain can be you know really extreme and that there will be a lot of blood and clots and and that she might and if she wants to talk her through about how she can retrieve her baby um, and then what to do with it how to wrap it up how to keep it to preserve it then talk her through what she can do with the baby's body and just to be really plain speaking and obviously compassionate about it to 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 not leave any stone unturned to let her know that these are the potentials so do you think we need to put the emphasis back on the training back in the hospitals of, of, yeah, of this, think, this kind of conversation i think so and to be fair you know there are there there are people doing there are people out there training mm. um and uh you know charities like the miscarriage association and sands and tommy's are doing great great work but you know the nhs is a big beast it's re do i need to spell out that it's has its problems and its resourcing problems so we're really up against it mm. um, and what we're also talking about a lot is that women presenting in a e um and actually the research coming out i read a paper yesterday about a recent study done in some some er's in canada can't remember which state now but you know this is a real crunch point as well because a e by definition is a place of you know high crisis and people are running around saving lives and they're they are constantly triaging you know what, what whether it's life-threatening or not and and the vast vast majority of miscarriages not including ectopics aren't life-threatening mm. a e is not an appropriate place more often than not for a miscarriage and i know you talked about the closure of things like early pregnancy units and there is that then question of where to go and even the fact that in hospitals normally there aren't rooms areas designated for women and they might well be on a, on a maternity ward or in a labour ward and obviously there's all of the trauma attached to, to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, that there's still a bit of a no man's land for um, every hospital is different. They have different um, sort of gestational mark, markers as to when a woman will be admitted to the labour ward. And most labour wards now, and the, it's really encouraging, have sort of fantastic... Um, resources and support there and a dedicated bereavement suite but if you're miscarrying before you know you're at that gestational marker which might vary it could be I know one hospital where you, at 14 weeks you might go to the labour ward but others might be up to 18 weeks and if you're in that no man's land at the moment there are, there is great room for greater resourcing for that experience. I could ask you more and more questions <sighs> there's so much to talk about but one of the points that I wanted to kind of end on is that you talk about with miscarriage how you want there to be more education how we need a generation that are prepared and I just wanted to kind of pick up on that because obviously you've put all of the time and effort into your book um, there's all different kind of examples of people that you've worked with and, and I really encourage people to, to to read it to get an insight into the processes that people have have themselves gone through and how how you've helped them i mean there are talks of changes with the curriculum especially in the uk yeah. with sex education including fertility within yeah. those conversations and as a result of that infertility and miscarriage and the ideal being that you know growing up you're you're aware of this kind of stuff I, absolutely throughout 
tucks into those conversations and those initiatives that are already you know about you know I think it absolutely dovetails completely you know I, I think it would serve a generation generations of girls and boys well to to when they have their sex education um, not believe like I did and gazillion other people have for years evermore that if you don't use a condom or on the pill you're going to get pregnant and have a baby nine months later which you know frankly we were all led to believe that the reality is you know making a family ain't always easy um it's it, you know the power in the information and, and education and you know i know there's a whole other piece that you're that, that i'm totally behind too about you know, fertility awareness generally and you know just as our ovarian reserve will be affected over time so our risk for miscarriage so yeah no Absolutely, just enfranchising the whole subject. Congratulations on the book. I know that it's been, you say a labour of love, but it's an amazing piece of work. The phenomenal research and, and the history of how miscarriage has been perceived and the narrative around it, I think it's so fascinating to understand more about. And I think it's a really worthwhile read for you, whether it's something you've experienced or something that you know somebody that has. I know, like I said, that I learn a heck of a lot. And it's, I mean, it's not an easy read. I think it's a necessary read. Well, thank you so much for letting me talk about it. It's been great to chat. And good luck. Thank what you. What happens next? I know it's about yes. to launch in America and we're talking about the audiobook. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you're the expert on that one. But Do you want um, to just share a bit about what you've just had to do with your audiobook as, a, as we finish? Because I think that's quite... Ah, okay. Well, I guess I had this very bizarre <laughs> experience of having to choose my voice to read my book, which uh, was a weird sort of like being on a dating app. So uh, <laughs> five women to choose between and um, very unfairly chose on not just their voice, but what, what they seemed like to me by, by their kindness of their face which is very uh, naughty of me but <laughs> very human your book you do what you like well I, <laughs> I hope it sounds everything that you you hope lovely to chat and I'll put the links to As my always. with Julia so you can get a bit more about her background because I was keen to talk about her book and where she is now we have we have spoken before as I've said thank you I do love talking with Julia and she's so smart and yeah that book well like I said I didn't have a chance to read all of it but what I did read was fascinating and I haven't had to experience a miscarriage but I sadly have had plenty of friends who have and I've then met more of you in this space who have dealt with it and it's a hard read as I said but a, a really worthwhile read so I'll put the details of how you can get access to Julia's book and of course follow her on socials as well. She's a total bookworm and is always sharing books on her Instagram which I'm always intrigued by. The show notes for this episode are thefertilitypodcast.com Understanding Miscarriage. Go and have a look, go and um, get in touch with Julia if you want to and um as always let me know any feedback that you've got if this episode has been helpful like i said at the start do give me a follow on my socials to keep in touch at fertility poddy and you can also sign up to my email list actually to keep up to date with all that's going on another thing that i don't mention nearly enough and i so should just in case social media comes crashing down and we can't be in touch with one another at least i'll have your emails 
A really exciting thing actually happening the week after. Next, the 17th of June, I'm going to start sharing content on UKHealthRadio.com, which I'll tell you more about in next week's episode. But um, yeah, I'm starting doing a really cool new show with Kate Davis, who's been a guest on this podcast, and we're launching it on the 17th of June. So you definitely want to be on my email list to make sure that you know exactly what's going on in my world. Thank you for your support. Have a good week and until the next time, 